Mr. Deputy Speaker, dear ward recipients, excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Anita Brodén. I'm a member of the Swedish Parliament and represent the Liberal Party. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Jean Sharp, born in Ohio in the United States of America. Dr. Sharp has for a very long time worked for non-violent solution and democracy. He was jailed for nine months protesting conscription in the Korean War 1953. He witnessed China's Tiananmen Square uprising in 1989 and snuck into a rebel camp in Burma in the 1990s. Dr. Jean Sharp is very well known also as an author of a handbook for nonviolence actions from dictatorship to democracy. This handbook is now translated into 34 languages. The Wall Street Journal describes this man as having had a broad influence on international events, helping to advance a global democratic awakening. I want to welcome the academic writer and Machiavelli of nonviolent resistance, Dr. Jean Sharp. The floor is yours. Katie Helper Show. Today I talked to Marcy Smith about the very Jean Sharp you just heard being introduced. So this episode is a little bit different because I combine the interview I did with Marcy Smith with audio that I recorded at a book talk given by a friend of the show, Max Blumenthal, in April around his latest book, The Management of Savagery. These two things are related. Max's book focuses on the Middle East, but as listeners know, he's done really important reporting on and from Venezuela. And according to Max and others, like another friend of the show, George Chicarello Mar, the Venezuelan opposition has used Sharp's teachings. So whether or not this means Sharp has links to the Venezuelan opposition is up to listeners. And we'll get into that during another episode. But some background on Gene Sharp and also on Marcy Smith. So Jean Sharp died in January of 2018, and Marcy Smith has been working on a piece about Sharp for a while now, but it was only recently published on May 10th. So we are in a hotel lobby, because that's how we roll, and I'm here talking to Marcy Smith. There are some rowdy John Jay academics in the background. Marcy is an adjunct lecturer of economics at John Jay, and Marcy wrote a great and controversial piece about Gene Sharp. It's called Change Agent, Gene Sharp's Neoliberal Nonviolence, Part 1, and it was published on Non-Site. So... Tell us why you wrote this piece and who Gene Sharp is. For those of us who don't know who he is, I actually do. We'll get into why that is later. But yeah, most people have no idea who this person is. I don't think I've even heard of him. Um, I think that Politico put it well, that he's the most influential, influential American political figure you've never heard of. I, I agree with that assessment. My name is Gene Sharp, and this is the work I do. He was a social scientist, and he spent his career theorizing the dynamics of nonviolent action. 
Primarily, I try to understand the nature and potential of nonviolent forms of struggle to undermine dictatorships. Um, and uh, he wrote prolifically on this subject. Makes sense. Lots of nonviolent protest movements have um, studied his work and adopted his methods, his political jujitsu. And uh, in, in addition to this kind of theoretical work that he did, um, much of it early in his career, uh, he also uh, advocated for adoption of his ideas. Um, and he, in 1983, started an organization called the Albert Einstein Institution, which uh, advanced nonviolent action as a means to, quote unquote, promote democratic freedoms um, around the world. And consequently, he was involved, um, along with a number of other sort of interesting colleagues at the Albert Einstein Institution, um, in what, what we often call the color revolutions or velvet revolutions that swept Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, it turns out he also was present and, and involved with uh, training activists and sort of consulting with activists in the lead up to the collapse of the Soviet Union itself, which is um, very important. Uh, so anyhow, um, the kind of mainstream version of uh, Sharp's career, which is what I, I take uh, take issue with, is that you know, he's kind of this Gandhi-like character. He's frequently compared to Gandhi. Gene Sharp is a political thinker whose influence is now spoken of in the same breath as Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King. That he's you know, this you know, kind of reclusive, wise man. But he's no platform speaker or figurehead at a demonstration, rather a quietly spoken political philosopher who's been writing about nonviolent struggle for 50 years. And, and since he passed in 2018, in the beginning of 2018, there's been this almost kind of sanctification effort afoot, like kind of turning him into a modern day saint. It's been my great privilege for the past two and a half years to be making a film about a man who I think will probably be seen as one of the most important political thinkers of our generation. I'd love to read you a piece from the, the Times today which describes Gene's uh, work and it says not perhaps since Machiavelli has a book had such impact in shifting the balance of power between the rulers and the ruled. Unlike Machiavelli however Gene Sharp is not advising princes how to hold on to power. He is telling millions living under dictatorship how to liberate themselves. And I think it's important to lay out the fullness of Sharp's career and the fullness of his ideas so that we can have a conversation about, you know, what, what was it that he really was arguing for? Um, what is his full legacy? What can we keep as progressive movements in the U.S. Um, and use and, and what needs to be set aside? So my argument is that the best way to understand Sharp is that he was, number one, a really, really important Cold War defense intellectual. He uh, began his the kind of most important part of his early career at a place called the Center for International Affairs at Harvard, which is a bastion of Cold War defense intelligence and security policy development. And, you know, it's the, the, the characters in, in this place include the people like Henry Kissinger, McGeorge Bundy, the nuclear strategist Thomas Schelling, Samuel Huntington. It is not the CIA, but but uh, you know Robert Bowie, who is one of its uh, kind of initial co-directors, does go on to serve as deputy director to the Central Intelligence Agency. 
and you know others have kind of OSS or eventual kind of security state connection. So I think it's important to recognize Sharp as a kind of important defense intellectual in the Cold War and. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the kind of nascent national security state was very interested in, in the kind of question of peace research and making nonviolent change to advance an American-led world order in the wake of, of you know, World War II as kind of like the whole, you know, that, that whole project, that whole moment of, you know, the Bretton Woods institutions and, you know, the, the rise of the U.S. as the kind of epicenter of Western capitalist power. So number two, I think we should see Sharp as an important theorist of state transformation, specifically a neoliberal theorist of state transformation, because he saw the, 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 the politics of nonviolent action, as he called them, actually as a means to decentralizing state power. He wrote a big book called uh, Social Power and Political Freedom, and in this book he argues that uh, kind of the key problem in the modern world is the centralized state. And uh, the reason he thinks this is a problem is because he thinks that features of state centralization like regulation, like quote-unquote government controls over the economy, like government ownership. He also kind of makes disparaging comments about high taxes. You know, he thinks that, that these forms of what he identifies as government centralization is kind of like the key vector to genocide, tyranny, you know, war, violence, right? And he makes this association between more centralization, more violence. And he, despite kind of having this real politic aesthetic and kind of affect, was a Cold War liberal. And these are very moralistic people frequently who see the world in terms of good and evil. And uh, he wanted to advance good. And, you know, so he wanted to... Uh, uh, attack the centralized state, you know, and what does that mean in, in practice? I mean, it was, you know, a not actually thinly veiled at all um, comment on the Soviet Union, comment on uh, kind of impliedly as well, the New Deal state. He's not an economist. He doesn't talk about the market, doesn't talk about privatization, doesn't talk about the New Deal, but the kind of policies that he's referencing, you know, are identifiable, easily identifiable to anybody who knows anything about what the New Deal was um, and what it's meaning was in terms of kind of the balance of class forces. Um, so thirdly, I think he needs to be understood as a really important kind of counselor to very, very important anti-communist movements um, from the kind of, you know, latter part of the, cold, the, the late Cold War through uh, the color revolutions. And that's a very interesting part of his career. And, and in that part of his career, you know, he's working via the Albert Einstein Institution, which he co-founds with a fellow named Peter Ackerman. Who I've met. Oh, have you? Yeah, well, I'll talk, tell you about that. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Wow, interesting. So Peter Ackerman, who... Um, Who's when? Jewish, but it, it, oh, that's right, he converts. Christian scientist. Oh, he's a Christian scientist. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. So going from uh, hypochondria to uh, <laughs> kind of the opposite, yeah. How interesting. I did not know that about Peter Ackerman. What I do know is that he was, at the time of Albert Einstein Institution's founding, also working at Drexel Burnham Lambert, which was a very notorious uh, investment bank led by Michael Milken, the junk bond king, the person after whom approximately Gordon Gecko of Wall Street is based. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Um, 
Drexel Burnham Lam Lambert uh, kind of innovates the junk bond funded leveraged buyout, which is uh, the financial mechanism that really facilitates uh, American deindustrialization. So, you know, Ackerman spends the first several years of his association with Sharp, well, his first several years of working with Sharp um, at AEI. Ackerman was actually a student of Sharp's also working at this investment bank. Confidants of the president are said to be urging him to pardon junk bond king Michael Milken. In an August 2017 letter, former Morgan Stanley managing director David Bonson called Milken's prosecution, quote, a period of class envy run amok. Milken Foundation co-founder, high yield bond pioneer, pled guilty to securities tax violations. He served for two years, paid $600 million in fines, and then he founded the Milken Institute, which has really revolutionized a lot of medical research in the country. It's quite extraordinary. We, we do see in this moment, right, there, there's a shift happening. Like, the neoliberal turn is happening. Um, uh, you know, Reagan is elected in 1980. It, there's, like, a new foreign policy that accompanies this sort of the neoliberal domestic program of, of cutting taxes and deregulation and so on and so forth. And the, the international component of that is rollback. So, you know, the era of George Kennan's containment is out. And now Reagan has a much more aggressive kind of pugnacious policy of let's roll communism back. And so as part of that program, things like the National Endowment for Democracy are founded, which is very openly funding uh, quote-unquote pro-democracy movements around the world. Um, one of its founders uh, is quoted in, in uh, an old article from the Post as saying, yeah, we, we do what the CIA did 25 years ago. Um, so, you know, incidentally, the, the CIA kind of catches wise. It's not so smart to just finance private, you know, civil society organizations directly because when you get caught, it's really politically costly, Um Ramparts, there was this big expose, I'm sure you know, Ramparts in the 60s, you know, exposes that the CIA is funding the National Student Association, and it's very um, damaging. And I, I deal with that actually in the article, because there's an association with the CIA at Harvard. Um, the, the, the way that we know this, that the CIA shifts strategy, is because, you know, some rambunctious, like, SDS activists steal documents from the CIA at Harvard, uh, which, which document this thing called the Bissell meeting, in which Richard Bissell, who's head of the deputy directorate of plans at the CIA, um, the, the, actual, the actual CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, um, is, is explaining to people, you know, we're shifting strategy away from direct funding and toward uh, the use of cutouts and intermediaries because of this, you know, lesson that we learned from this um, kind of disastrous uh, exposure of the... the, the funding of the National Students Association. So, so yeah, so Sharp and Ackerman together are doing all this, and, and Ackerman will go on to sit on the board of the Cato Institute and advocate for the privatization of the social security system. But also, he's, he's found something that's, like, third party. Oh, right. Yeah, Americans elect. Yeah, it's like, what's so weird about all these people is that you get how from certain perspectives like and and you say this in your piece you say that people like Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn praise Sharp and you know there is this weird strange bedfellows weird overlap and there will be a lot of overlap especially when you're like you're anti-dictator like they are uh -huh. you know it's very easy just looking at those optics and being like oh this is a good person because they're standing mm -hmm. up to dictatorship if you don't interrogate what they're fighting for in its stead and what they're championing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very well put. I mean, we have to always ask when we see 
political actors, you know, what are they proposing right. affirmatively, right? As opposed to what are you opposing? I mean, well, that's helpful, but like also what, what are you proposing instead? And for Sharp, you know, he's very, as I say in the article, I think he's very canny about this. He describes himself as transpartisan. He describes himself as sort of not wanting to tell people what to demand. But on the other hand, I mean, in a book like Social Power and Political Freedom, he is very candid about the kind of world he'd like to see. And it's one in which state power is diffused. And he argues, you know, that a great way to diffuse state power is through he, these mechanics of, of nonviolent action. And if we zoom out and then think about what we have seen over the, the past, um, you know, especially uh, 30 years, you know, th this is a formula that actually holds true, which is not to say that we dismiss protest, which is a preposterous conclusion, I think, right? Gene Sharp didn't invent protest. He theorized it uh, on Department of Defense funds at the center, at the, at the, at the, you know, at the center of uh, uh, kind of Cold War defense intelligence and security uh, policy development. I mean, th th so that's that's what I'm taking umbrage with, um, and and you know I'm also uh, taking umbrage because I want progressive movements in the U.S. to be effective, and my concern, which I'll deal with in greater detail in part two, is is this that the way that Sharp constructs the dynamics of nonviolent action is with the object of diffusing state power in mind, right? So, so what, if, what if someone doesn't want to collapse a regime? What if somebody wants to tax the rich? What if somebody wants to increase funding for public school? What if somebody wants to expand voting access? What if somebody wants to, uh, I don't know, pass a Green New Deal, right? All the kind of affirmative things that we want the state to do. I think unless we can see clearly that, you know, these, these politics of nonviolent action do offer some, some useful insights, right? But see the limits, see the limits of what it offers. We're going to find ourselves again and again in a certain cul-de-sac because implicitly the state is pathologized. And I mean, and I say this not just as somebody who is sort of, you know, like dropping into Sharp's literature with no context, but as somebody who has been in, um, a, you know, a social movement and kind of watched how history unfold within, within this movement. The reason I first became interested is because I spent about 10 years in the U.S. climate movement from about 2006 to 2016, 2017. And um, I was frustrated with some of the, what in my view were limitations and weaknesses of our movement and um, wanted to understand uh, why we sort of kept finding ourselves in the same cul-de-sacs, or at least that was my opinion. That was my view. And so uh, I started looking more closely at some of the um, intellectuals and the texts that circulated in the climate movement back when, when I was really involved, um, and that were 
you know, used and um, studied without much critical engagement, actually, that they were sort of just adopted because they, they frequently have kind of very apolitical, kind of post-ideological tones, I guess. Anyway, so one of these folks is Gene Sharp. And um, the more I read, the more uh, peculiar I thought it was that, that this uh, intellectual um, was so central to activist strategy in the U.S. Um, and also internationally. Um, and here we are. He is. He does provide useful theory for us on the left, the non-anti-state left. But he is very, what's ironic, because he is very moralistic. But what's ironic is that his embrace of nonviolence is not a Quaker one or a, an ideological, right? It's strategic. That's a great question. I mean, like, he begins his, well, like, two things. Um, number one, I, I, I say that he's moralistic, but he's, he, he is that in a kind of undercover way. It's not like he continues throughout his entire career to talk about things in terms of good versus evil. Like he's trying to be taken seriously and he recognizes that that sort of undermines his credibility with like a NATO audience, you know, so that, I mean, he really distances himself. Exactly. Exactly. So he's, he distances himself, but you know, I, I, my, my interpretation of, of a book like social power and political freedom um, is that, you know, the, the kind of uh, schema of good versus evil is, is kind of just very, very clear in it, right? You know, like you're, you're opposing, you know, bad people and bad things, you know, with, with very, uh, m- very minimal comments on like, okay, well, how is productive life organized? How does that make people bad? <laughs> you know, how, how does it, you know, both, both create villains and create victims? Might we change how we how we organize productive life so that we we don't we aren't bifurcated into these categories right which are very dehumanizing in both directions anyhow so i I would say that about the question of his his idealism or moralism and yeah so he, he but he begins his career you know studying gandhi he works at a... For whom, obviously, nonviolence was incredibly moral, right? I mean, it has a strategic, and I'm sure there's tons of scholarship debating this, how much it was strategic versus moral, but obviously soul force, right? He had this whole, Gandhi had this whole ideological, moral framing of it. It wasn't just a strategic decision. Right. And who Gene Sharp is. I mean, it's interesting because he was more moral than he wanted to let on, right? Because he wanted to be taken seriously by the defense state um, yes. but it is also true on the other hand that capitalism and neoliberalism like to pretend that they lack ideology and morality mm-hmm. and they're just kind of like just looking at the numbers folks yeah. I don't want it to be this way it's just the yeah. laws of finance or capital right. or the market right. but it really is very ideological Absolutely. and very yeah. pro things and very anti things yes no no for sure I mean I think that is you know, yeah, when an ideology becomes so embedded in consciousness where you can't even see it, like, that's when it has won, right? right? So this is a point, like, like among others, David Harvey makes. Yeah, what's the, the quote from um, Usual Suspects? It's like the greatest oh, trick that the greatest trick that devil ever pulled. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Oh, yes. So it's like yeah. a bad ideology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is, this is like, worth just underscoring. Um... You know, Sharp is working at a place um, in London Peace News, which is a pacifist letter in the 50s, and um, gets recruited to study with this fellow Arne Noss in uh, Norway. And while there, I mean, it's 
I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing because Sharp then, then starts graduate work at Oxford. And, but, but in this kind of period where he's living in Europe, he meets in Norway a guy named uh, Dr. Thomas Schelling. Um, and Schelling has been described as kind of the man who made the Cold War what it was. He, he, he was actually consulted in the production of Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> so that's kind of the, the, you know, he's like a master nuclear strategist. And he sees a lot of promise in Sharp's dissertation, um, you know, trying to theorize Sharp's dissertation, which is trying to theorize the dynamics of nonviolent action. Um, and... You know, right around this time, incidentally, and, and there's, I, I have not found any evidence that Sharp was himself directly involved with this or funded through this program, but it is good to just have as context kind of where the mind of the defense establishment is. There's this thing called Project Camelot um, that has, it's, it's called the Manhattan Project of the Social Sciences, and the Department of Defense is funding social scientists to or they've set out to fund social scientists to uh, research, um, you know, kind of like key uh, questions related to the problems of uh, kind of volatility in this new Cold War world um, and, and it's kind of decolonizing world. And so research focuses on, quote, like the, the use and control of force. It, there's a great book, Armed with Expertise, that documents Project Camelot. Um, Camelot is interested in questions of peace research, and how to, you know, advance an American-led world order through nonviolent change. And Thomas Schelling is a consultant on this project. So the project is, is exposed by a Chilean political scientist and so called off eventually under orders from, you know, McNamara um, with Johnson kind of backing him up. And, uh, but, you know, the, the person, this, this, this great... Uh, historian who wrote this book, Armed with Expertise, you know, explains that it really the research just continues under, you know, a new, a new name, basically. So the reason I say this is because, you know, the, the, the security state has interest in this question of how do we mobilize nonviolent action? Right. How do we mobilize, uh, you know, how, how do we advance our interests peacefully? Okay. Which you could say is better than how do we advance our interests violently, but like once you examine the interest, I mean, if your interest is, you know, how do we come to own and control all the copper mines right. in Chile when Allende is trying to nationalize them, you know, so that we can profit from the natural resources of this sovereign state, you know, okay, like that is important context. <laughs> and it's also, I mean, it's like, it creates violence, right? The nonviolent techniques and technology create a violent situation, you know. Not to sound like a cliche, but poverty is violence, hmm. letting people die of preventable yeah, diseases, sharp, fall from machinery because right. they don't have the correct, you know, protections. Right. All sharp. of that stuff is violent. It's just not military violence. Yes. And, but or sharp. it's not even, I mean, military or paramilitary. Right. It's just on the job violence or part of the system violence. Yeah. It's and it's diffused. so unnecessary. Yeah, it's diffused. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's you know, I mean, like... Zizek, you know, talks about this. He's got this book, you know, Violence, Six Sideways Reflections. Um, you know, Arendt gets at this. I mean, that, that violence is a difficult concept to pin down. And, you know, a lot of violence is indirect. And, and by that, I mean a lot of injury, unjust, antisocial injury is inflicted by indirect means. Um, but Sharp defines violence as 
being direct, direct injury. And so in that way, he manages, for example, to say that sanctions are nonviolent. And he starts a, a, an early program studying sanctions at the CIA at Harvard. Uh, for him, you know, it, it's causality is too attenuated for the administration that is uh, you know, has the sanction policy to be accused of being violent, mm-hmm. right? I mean, which I think intuitively to most people, it seems pretty cynical. Um, so, so yes, I mean, I think that, too, and which explains, again, in part two, I'll deal with this, but the kind of fixation on nonviolence and U.S. protest movements, which is not to say that I'm, I'm calling for right. guerrilla war, which is ridiculous, um, but rather, it, it, you know, if, if we're fixated on violence in, in a direct way, it, it very well could make us blind to, you know, all the various sundry ways that, you know, indirect violence is uh, wreaking total havoc. Right. It's, it's almost like we have turned nonviolent action into an ends as opposed to a means. It's like this is the goal of all things to turn all people into nonviolent activists. When... Um, no, the goal is to address all of this indirect violence and, and, you know, this very well may mean engaging the state and using its apparatuses, yes, which include the courts, which include the police, um, to transform the balance of power, to transform productive life. So what would that look like? I mean, well, I think I might punt on that until part two. But I mean, I I think what it would look like is us, uh, you know, talking now about, okay, what what is it that we are um, doing well tactically? And then what are the ways in which, you know, kind of intellectually we're we're a a bit stunted, perhaps in part because there has been this like kind of almost obsession with the, the tactics and strategies that Sharp outlined, um, that, that we're, we sort of lost the forest for the trees a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the first step is, is thinking. And, you know, that's going to invite, as this article has, um, a lot of criticism and pushback, thinking, you know, you, you, aren't, you aren't supposed to think too hard. Right. Only a little bit. I, I do think that this is something that, like, the post-Bernie world, not to be totally Bernie-centric, but I do feel like this is a conversation that for you would be have been possible, like, earlier, although I happen to know it would have been. Not that early, because if listeners don't know this, you were raised by in a, different politics than the ones that you have. But um, I do feel like a lot of people are ready to hear this now that wouldn't have been, because I do feel like that liberal-left divide is, like, very no pun intended, in sharp relief right now in a way that it wasn't before. I didn't even think of that, ladies and gentlemen. But yeah, we should continue this, and we should also, um, when we do, I got to tell you the story about how I met Ackerman, and it was through this guy, Al Giordano, but I did this program that he ran in, in Mexico, the School of Authentic Journalism, yeah. And I remember, because they funded the school, the School of Authentic yeah. Journalism. Like, at what level? Like, a lot or just... I think a lot. I mean, it's it's probably not a lot for them, but it's a lot for this program, which yeah. is just gather people at a place in Mexico for, like, yeah. ten, five to ten days, depending on the year. But I remember not getting it, because I was like, why conflict? I didn't realize how incredibly, like aggressive it was towards the state or towards certain governments. So I was like, why conflict? Why not change? Because I thought it was this more like transformative. 
And then I realized how it really was about, you know, and there was a big fight the first year that they, that I went to that school. It was the first year they funded it because it was exposed how they had helped like Venezuelan opposition, Cuban opposition, and people were not having it, which was interesting. That's very interesting. But yeah, and the whole thing for our school was like how nonviolence has a tactic, you know. This woman told me that I, I should get a, jo- a job at the State Department. Yeah. Can you imagine yeah. telling me? Yeah, She's like, you'd be funny. great for the State Department. Yeah, it'd be a good asset. You would be. Um, I mean, and, and let me just underscore this because it's something that my that that people who who don't agree with me are very sensitive about. Is you know, it's Sharp was not a member of the Central Intelligence Agency. He wasn't a CIA agent. I mean, and I think this is a little bit frustrating because I find it a very mechanical um, method. You know, like, did he, did he ever, is there a pay stub somewhere that proves he was an agent of the CIA? And it's like, I, I've never said that, that he is. I mean, what, it's like, just what, what I think is that Gene Sharp was very clear about his politics. I mean, I think he's very clear. He, he opposes the centralized state. He opposes lots of regulation. He opposes uh, state controls in the economy. He opposes state ownership. And in that way, he is not... He, he has no dispute with the broad contours of American policy in the Cold War. He, too, wants to see the Soviet Union defeated. He, too, you know, wants to see, uh, you know, uh, the state power rolled back in the United States. And, and he's not ambiguous about this, which is kind of just kind of so startling that few of his defenders have really engaged with this, right? And the meaning of this, the meaning of these politics have become clearer with time. And the meaning is the, the neoliberal project, right? That's what we see. It's austerity. It's privatization. It's tax cuts. You know, it is deindustrialization in the United States. It is structural adjustment in the third world. This is what it looks like, okay? So if we're talking about decentralizing, diffusing state power, what it practically has meant is this, you know, r- ravaging, though indirect, violence, um, you know, that, that we're now kind of, you know, dealing with, perhaps honestly, you know, yes, thanks to, I, I think, in large part, people like Bernie Sanders. Um, but, but, yeah, so it, it's, it's not, I don't know, it's like he's not, he's not, uh, yeah, he may be spooky, you know, because he has all these relationships, but he wasn't a spook. He wasn't a spy. Um, I mean, also that like defies all principles of psychological warfare and like, you know, it, it's just like intelligent strategy, strategy and like espionage strategy. Like Gene Sharp would not simultaneously be like a spy in social movements, like reporting and like writing reports on like social movements and also doing all of this intellectual labor. That is ridiculous. Um so, you know, and yes, you know, I think some of the earliest critiques of Sharp were a bit ham-fisted on this and didn't make so precise, a, a, you know, a, a distinction here. But that's not what you're doing. No, I'm, I'm trying to be very clear about this, um, that, that, yeah, that's, that's not my argument. Um, yeah, I think Sharp himself was, like, sort of very transparent about, like, what he wanted to do and then he was very effective in doing it and uh so i don't know that people who defend sharp so much that we have a disagreement about um the facts really even i I think it's more about our interpretation of their meaning right and they're trying to shame you like um decorum shame you because he died even though you've been working on this and researching this for how long now 
Um, I mean, I started this, uh, I mean, almost three years ago. Because I know when I met you, full disclosure, like you, I was asking you when this piece was going to come out that just came out. a long time ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. But then because he died, it was a reasonable hook. And you did this interview with Doug Henwood. And then you were presented as a kind of like a mercenary. Yeah, a mercenary of whom? I'd like to know who's been paying me. A nonprofit mercenary. Yeah. I mean, well, there. I mean, that that's not you know, Craven. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. That, that that's inter- that's interesting to me. I mean, I I I I meant no. I really I didn't mean any disrespect. Yeah. And I do think you know, right? In moments like this, people's legacy is being contested. Right. And um, you can't be neutral on the moving train, as Howard Zinn said. As as Howard Zinn. Well, yeah. As Apparently Howard. That's not true according to physics, but. Yeah. Yeah. Did did Chomsky or Howard Zinn ever, like, revisit their assessment, or or you can ask Chomsky? There is a letter that comes out written by a scholar of nonviolent action named Steven Zunis. I know him, too. Yeah, well, and this is this is all very delicate. I get that, you know. It's it's no, but it's that's a problem too. This is a problem in media. This is a problem in like academia. You get to know people, and you don't want to be honest about it. It's awkward. Like it happens all the time, but it's not good. It's not transparent. You don't interrogate things. Yeah, and and I actually, you know, to that point, I I do actually want to be on the record saying this. um, That you you mentioned how I was raised, and and the key thing to know about how I was raised is that I was raised in an environment in which there was lots of very very fruitful, um, um, intelligent. you know, lively, that's kind of sometimes like putting it nicely, uh, debate, political debate. And I was never given a pass, you know, like, thankfully I was never given a pass like, oh, she's a woman, be nice. Like, no, like people kicked the tires on my ideas. And I'm deeply grateful, you know, that I was, you know, raised, I think, to be pretty intellectually tough, you know, and, um, I do see that kind of missing on the left. Um, and I think it's an expression of kind of anti-intellectualism, which I sort of underestimated that as a force, you know, up until pretty recently. But I think that's definitely happening, I think. But also just kind of like um, there's this kind of faux folksiness yeah. sometimes that like, like it's like, you know, to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well no, I, I actually, you know, consensus is a very anti-intellectual process because it's, it's a lowest common denominator kind of thing. It's a very conservative yeah. process. And, and people who, uh, you know, th- th- uh, this actually, some of this will be addressed in part two, but, but among, you know, the people who really encourage consensus um, kind of back in the 70s and 80s have since been like, I don't know that this is such a great idea. Right. And there's a difference between organizing and coalitions and then consensus among kind of on, at an intellectual ideological oh, assessment level. Yeah. Golly, yes. I mean, can uh, yeah. Ideological consensus right. is totalitarianism. And and look, I mean if if I, I uh, well, I I have I've been challenged to a debate. I mean, I I'm not I'm not on Twitter. Um I'm barely on Facebook. I I just it's not my style. Yeah. I mean, I wish I was a more quick-witted person, but I mean, I just, I don't thrive in this environment. Yeah, so. You can use me in your, like, ERP. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Um, so, I mean, my understanding is that, yes, I've been attacked on Twitter, and, and I'm glad that's helping 
people like us uh, draws attention, you know, to the conversation. Um, but anyhow, one of one of the Jarps defenders and, and my critics has asked, um, kind of challenged me publicly to debate, and I accepted. Um, so I look forward to that, and I and I that's what I think that we need. That was Marcy Smith, an adjunct lecturer at John Jay, and I'll be talking to Marcy again once her part two is out. Now I play the audio from a book talk given by friend of the show, Max Blumenthal, in April at the People's Forum. It was for his latest book, The Management of Savagery, How America's National Security State Fueled the Rise of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Donald Trump. Chris Hedges was interviewing him. process that Joshua Landis, or one of the leading serious scholars in this country, who has been roundly demonized for daring to be a straight shooter on this issue. It's a process that Joshua Landis calls Talibanization. And you can even look at the Amnesty, you know, Amnesty International, which has pushed for regime change, Human Rights Watch. They've documented this. In Idlib, for example, the Druze population was forced to dig up their own family's graves because they had not been buried in a religiously proper way. And then they were forced to convert or leave or die. The Christian population was forced to convert or die. Women who wore colorful hijab were until recently forced to wear all black. Music was banned. Public weddings were banned. Public singing was banned. Slogans of Ayman al-Zawahiri were painted on city walls. And this is what would have happened to Damascus if the regime change plan that the U.S. referred to, this is an actual name for the U.S. plan that the Pentagon came up with, catastrophic success had succeeded. This was what would have happened in Damascus, and you would have seen, I hear, you know, I'm being called a genocide denier. You would have actually seen genocide at the hands of people like Zahran Alush, who was the main Saudi proxy in East Ghouta and Duma, who explicitly said, that we must exterminate the Alawites and cleanse the coast. And that's what they proceeded to try to do in 2013, the first time after the first major shipments of heavy weapons. You saw villages like Baluta invaded by not just Syrian insurgents, but the emir of Libya's wing of ISIS was a part of this attack. And The Guardian actually reported on this back when they reported on these sorts of things, that when Syrian soldiers returned to this village, because many of them were conscripts and they were away, and it was an Alawite village, they found babies dangling from trees, people who were bisected, and 100 people who had been massacred by having their throats slit. And it was done to them because they were Alawite. It was done to them because the opposition in this case was genocidal. so it wasn't just ISIS. It was a who's who of the opposition that embodied this mentality. And in Washington, they were celebrated by neoconservatives like Eli Lake, who said that Zahran Alush is a friend of Israel. Um, that's another thing to take note of. The Syrian opposition, they never fought Israel. They never had an intention of fighting Israel. What they did do is they attacked Syria's 
anti-aircraft batteries to make it harder for them to resist Israel. But Eli Lake was promoting the Alush gang of Jaysh al-Islam that paraded captured Alawites on camera in cages to use them as human shields against airstrikes. You can just go see that footage for yourself. Let, let me just interject because uh, the, as you quote in the book, senior Israeli officials have been quite public about how they would rather have jihadists in, in charge of Damascus rather than the Alawites are about 10% of Syria. Yes. It's, it's a small Muslim sect which some Muslims consider and they, they, they funded them. But Moshe Yalon, the former Israeli defense minister, who is part of the opposition blue and white party now that all the liberal Zionists were cheering for, he said, if it's a choice between Assad and ISIS, I prefer ISIS. Because ISIS doesn't support Hezbollah, they fight Hezbollah. ISIS has never fought Israel. In fact, when ISIS lobbed a stray mortar over the Golan, to the occupied Israeli side of the Golan, they coordinated with Israel and they apologized, they apologized to Israel. They literally apologized. That's reported in the Times of Israel. Um, but back to what I want, it wasn't just Israel, it was John Kerry who admitted in a private meeting with Syrian opposition activists who are clamoring for them to bomb, for the U.S. to bomb, for the U.S. to invade, that John Kerry said, well, we were allowing ISIS to, to, to move. We were watching ISIS and we were ho essentially hoping they would march on Damascus because it would bring Assad to the table and force him to negotiate his transition out of power. So ISIS was a U.S. tool. Um, we actually saw the U.S. bomb in support of ISIS uh, during uh, a, a, a battle where uh, they helped ISIS capture a strategic hilltop to break up a joint coordination mechanism with Russia. This is all documented in my book, and no one disputes any of this, so it's kind of shocking to me. You know, I cite a lot of members of the Syrian opposition early on who opposed the Assad government, who rejected living in a police state, like Edward Dark, who's actually, that's a pseudonym, because he was afraid for his life, and how they had these hopes for reforms, at least, and those hopes were extinguished when their area became Talibanized, and Edward Dark was forced to produce his own Syrian passport at a checkpoint set up by Chechnyans in his neighborhood in Aleppo. So this is what happened, and we need to tell the truth, because the CIA is directly responsible for coordinating this entire operation, and we're supposed to consider them heroes to defend us from Donald Trump. Let's talk about the White Helmets. Let's talk about the White Helmets. And then let's talk about the refugee crisis in Europe. But let's go into the White Helmets. So I named all of these, I, I rattled off all these areas for you. I think it was important that I provide this context. The White Helmets were sold to us in the public, in, in, the, in the U.S., as the rescuers of Syria, as the rescuers of the Syrian people against the big bad dictator in his computer cave petting a cat, Bashar. In fact, there already was a Syrian uh, civil relief organization that worked with the state. The White Helmets only operated in areas controlled by the so-called rebels. And so I've been attacked for saying that the White Helmets worked with Al-Qaeda. Well, I didn't just say that the White Helmets worked with Al-Qaeda's local affiliate. I said they worked with Arar al-Sham. I said they worked with Jund al-Aqsa. I said they worked with Nur al-Din al-Zinki. I said they worked with ISIS itself. You can actually see the ISIS hostage, John Cantley, in a video who's still a hostage. He was a British reporter. And he's talking about ISIS's fire brigade because he was forced to do propaganda for ISIS's channel as a condition for staying alive. And behind him, 
are the White Helmets, funded to the tune of $23 million by USAID, now $35 million, $55 million by the British Foreign Office, and by the great, you know, lover of children, Boris Johnson, and who knows how much by the wonderful democratic human rights defenders in Qatar. So this was, and this was not a group that was just rescuing Syrians regardless of their affiliation. In fact, they were participating in executions in Haritan on video. They participated in the execution of an innocent man accused of violating the religious law imposed by Al-Qaeda's local affiliate. In Jassim, in southern Daraa, they participated in an execution that was on video. This is all we know because these are on video. And you know we've chronicled it, many people have chronicled it. They have been filmed celebrating the capture of Idlib by Al-Qaeda's local affiliate, and they're now in Afrin. What happened in Afrin? Basically, the Syrian opposition was repurposed as mercenaries, including former members of ISIS, to take a Kurdish city and loot the city center, and the White Helmets were part of that invasion, and the White Helmets are there as Turkish mercenaries. Uh, this is not a group that deserved to have been nominated for the Nobel Prize. This is a group that is part of one of the biggest deceptions uh, that's been foisted on us, and it was done with one express purpose, which is to fulfill the strategy of the Syrian opposition, which was to trigger U.S. military intervention because they could not defeat the Syrian Arab army and its allies themselves. And so they would... They were working with a public relations firm called the Syria Campaign, and I know for a fact, I've seen it, the Syria Campaign, which is funded by a Syrian-British billionaire named Ayman Asfari, a guy who wanted to come in and loot Syria after regime change. Uh, they have been trying to shut down this event. Uh, they've been flooding this event uh, with messages, or trying to pressure the owners to shut it down. This is a public relations firm uh, based in New York and London, and they set up the White Helmets website and this whole operation uh, to get you to sign on for a petition for the no-fly zone, uh, to get you to sign on uh, to support regime change. The White Helmets were actually coming to Washington to lobby for sanctions. Raid al-Salah, who's the leader of the White Helmets, actually visited Elliot Engel, one of the main Israeli proxies in the Democratic side in Congress to lobby for the so-called Caesar bill. And now Syrians are suffering so massively because of heating oil shortages, because of these sanctions. And again, the White Helmets, which pose as a humanitarian organization, were lobbying for these sanctions. So this is a regime change operation, and I chronicle the history of these kind of influence operations in my book, um, starting in the Afghan proxy war with a guy named John Train from the Paris Review, which is a CIA front magazine, who conceived of a film in which he hoped to document a Soviet chemical attack and show the horrors that the Afghan people were enduring to stir up public support for the operation there. Um, they wound up getting films like Rambo 3. But anyway, then there was um, Niara, sorry, Naira, who was the, uh, I think the niece of the Kuwaiti ambassador who appeared to testify during the run-up to Desert Storm that Saddam Hussein's forces had been taking Kuwaiti babies off their incubators. And it turned out that, well, that she was sold as just a common Kuwaiti girl, but that she was being coached by Hill and Knowlton, a public relations firm just like the Syria campaign, 
And she was operating, this whole operation was functioning out of Representative Tom Lantos's office to the tune of $50 million. So it all goes to what took place when the Syrian opposition failed to get the U.S. to intervene in 2013. They ramped up their public relations campaign. They implemented an influence operation. And those of us like me who got so disgusted with it that we decided to produce factual journalism on it have been attacked uh, politically, dehumanized publicly, and uh, we've tr and we faced just constant attempts to drive us out of journalism. And that's what happened to me as soon as I wrote a two-part series on the White Helmets that no one has disputed. And so what they seek to do is just say, this is a bad guy, you should listen to him. But they don't dispute the facts, they never debate, and in the few instances when they have debated, it didn't work out so well. So that's what this whole suppression campaign is about. They're trying to cover up one of the biggest scandals of modern times. And it's also mainstream reporters trying to cover up the fact that just as on Russiagate, they got this whole thing wrong because they're a bunch of opportunists, because they, lo they, they, love, they love following US regime change operations. They love following the wars. There were even reporters who fundraised for the White Helmets, and they thought this was the right and proper thing to do. So they're embarrassed. And when it came down to it, at Politics and Prose, which is the bookstore in Washington where you go if you're going to do your book tour. It's like the main kind of bookstore. James Lemur Surrier, the British military, former British military intelligence officer who founded the White Helmets in Turkey. This was not a Syrian-founded organization. Personally lobbied Politics and Prose to shut down my talk, which would be just like a lobbyist for Tyson Foods trying to shut down a talk on the evils of factory farming, or someone from Philip Morris trying to shut down a talk on the dangers of cigarettes. So that's what this is about. It's the very same people who appear on the pages of my book who have been trying to shut this down. And I'm, you know, I gotta say, I'm, I'm, I'm proud. I, I, I welcome their enmity. Let's talk about the, let's talk about the refugee crisis because you argue in the book correctly that uh, Syria alone, of course, has produced a million refugees in Europe. Uh, that this was a major factor in fueling the rise of the alt-right uh, parties like Alternative for Germany Party and others. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's the, it's the carelessness of our national security state that we can blame, that we can point the finger at, because they're among us. And they went into Libya and to Syria, ignoring the warnings, knowing that when you flood countries with weapons, when you bomb them, and when you remove their government, a stable government, no matter how authoritarian it might be, chaos ensues and people flee. And now we have a situation in Libya where the civil war is continuing uh, right before our eyes as uh, you know, General Khalifa Haftar marches on Tripoli, uh, possibly to end the civil war. We also have a situation in Libya where the refugee crisis, as even CNN has documented, has produced open-air slave auctions. And that is part of Barack Obama's legacy as president, and is part of Hillary Clinton's legacy. Um, I, I want to talk about one of the symbols of the refugee crisis, and then I'll talk about like, the effects of it, of it, some of the effects of it. 
One of the symbols of the refugee crisis is someone, maybe not everyone will know his name, but everyone will remember the image of a boy washed up on a beach in Bodrum, Turkey, named Alan Kurdi. And Alan Kurdi was on cover of every paper. Everybody grieved for this refugee, but no one put, no one thought to put the refugee situation in context, except that, again, Big Bad Bashar was in his computer cave bombing babies for fun. And there's no denying that the Syrian army bombed a lot of people. There's no denying it. I cite uh, one of the few peer-reviewed field surveys of refugees in Europe on why they left. It was carried out by a professor named Max Abrams at Northeastern University and his team, a team of Arabic speakers. And what they found was that roughly 50% of the refugees who were in Europe said they left because of the, the Syrian government's violence. And roughly the same amount left because of opposition violence. And now if we put it in a wider context, I don't think any of this violence would have occurred past 2011 or 2012 if the US, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey hadn't flooded that country with billions of dollars of weapons for that explicit purpose. So Alan Kurdi symbolizes something more complex than we're told, and the complexity confronted America when a backbench representative few had heard of named Tulsi Gabbard brought the aunt of Alan Kurdi, Tima Kurdi. This is a Kurdish family um, who had lived in Kurdish, uh, in Kobani, and fled Kobani under ISIS attack. And Tima Kurdi came to Washington and went on MSNBC and said, stop the proxy war. Stop funding these jihadists that have destroyed my community and led to my nephew having to drown in the sea. Stop doing it because it's up to you in Washington to stop. And naturally, she was kind of ignored, deliberately ignored. I mean, again, this speaks to one of the biggest scandals of our times. I met Tima Kurdi, and I write about it in the book on Capitol Hill, because Tulsi Gabbard had uh, organized a press conference for her bill called the Stop Arming Terrorists Act, which would have, uh, if at more than 13 representatives voted for it, cut off the House Appropriations Black Budget, which is basically a budget that none of you get to see or vote on because the CIA decides what it is for groups like Arar al-Sham and Javed al-Nusra. Uh, Professor Josh Landis estimates that 60 to 80% of U.S. arms wound up in the hands of Al-Qaeda's local affiliate on this one. And so there's this press conference. Almost nobody's there. It's me and like a few other reporters. Um, I get to, have, to sit down and talk to Tima, and she tells me that she has not only uh, been the target of ferocious Islamophobic attacks, uh, but the Syria campaign actually attempted to recruit her as a spokesperson. And she said, no, because I don't favor regime change. I'm Kurdish. I don't like Saddam Hussein. He killed my people. But look at what happened when we removed Saddam Hussein. And she said, it's the same thing in Syria. So stop the weapons flow, stop the war, and let people come back home. That was her simple message that was totally ignored. Now, it was ignored in the, the effects in Europe were extreme. The effects are party after party from the far right, also mobilizing uh, around economic austerity. Um, these are different than our far right parties in that they actually advocate for you to keep your pension. Um, they also are organizing on the basis of 
anti-refugee, Islamophobic, xenophobia, uh, the alliance, uh, the, 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 uh, the AFD, the um, Alliance for Deutschland, um, Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, who's campaigned to ban the Quran, um, UKIP, which is no longer in existence, but helped drive the right wing of the Brexit campaign. And I point to, uh, you know, one thing I can point to is a poll that's sort of been ignored about Brexit. It was a YouGov poll that showed that 70% of people who voted for leave were actually voting out of fear of migration. And what UKIP did was they put these banners, these giant billboards, all around the areas of the UK that had been deindustrialized. And they just showed Syrian refugees walking the Balkan Trail who'd been driven from their country and basically said, they're coming your way. David Cameron, extremely stingy character who was funding the Syrian proxy war to the hilt, directly arming al-Qaeda affiliates, has only allowed 60,000 60, Syrian refugees into the UK. So people were afraid of a specter. They were afraid of a phantom. And it worked. It helped drive the Brexit campaign. Um, and so, you know, we can look at campaign after campaign, but this issue is there, and we have to ask, why are there these refugee flows? How could it have been prevented? And who are the hypocrites? Who are the hypocrites who said that we could simultaneously intervene in these countries, help drive people from their homes, and then everybody has to accept them because love trumps hate? And I think a lot of people see through, I believe we should accept them all, but a lot of people who voted for Trump, they see that as hypocrisy and they are just turning the other way. Okay, we'll open it up to questions in a minute, but I just want to look at this chapter, Pawns in the Game. Yeah. Uh, and you write about the effects at home uh, after 9-11 and the heavy reliance by the FBI on informants. Uh, to entrap scores of young, mentally troubled Muslim men and send them to prison for as long as 25 years. And Obama is kind of the most egregious. Yes. So explain what happened here. Yeah, this is the other, the flip side of the so-called war on terror. Um, one point I want to make is that I, I, I refer to a national security state in the book uh, that's supposed to comprise all of these unelected sort of opaque elements that are managing the savagery of permanent war. Um, some people call them a deep state. I think I couldn't get away with calling them that just because I want to be respected in polite society or whatever. Um, but, you know, they're not actually interested in national security. They're like Spigny Brzezinski, who said, who was asked in 2006, do you have any regrets about what you did in Afghanistan, uh, arming the Mujahideen and creating the Taliban and Al-Qaeda as a result? And he said, hell no. You know, I have absolutely no regrets. Compared to the collapse of the Soviet Union, the rise of the Taliban is nothing. Um, that's almost a direct quote. And he said that again and again. That's the mentality that prevails in the Beltway think tanks. That's a it's about achieving geopolitical aims. And it's also about justifying your budget if you're running an agency. So if you're running the FBI after 9-11, this is a great opportunity to increase your budget. How do you do it? Well, there weren't many there didn't turn out to be real terror cells in the U.S. after 9-11. We were told, oh, we're going to find the terrorists next door. They'd already been wrapped up in New York to the extent that they existed, and those ones were operating under the auspices, of, under the watch of the FBI. Well, let me just, and you've reported on this, interject, that yeah. most of the people they went after 
were people who, like Samuel Arian or the, or the Holy Land, yeah, they uh, went were after people who, who, who Israel wanted targeted because yes. they were Palestinian spokespeople for the Palestinians. And, and they were laid out in Stephen Emerson's books as the targets. And so they went after them so they could get high-profile terror bus. And what they wound up doing was targeting Muslim American civil society on behalf of everyone who wanted them taken out. So not just Samuel Arian, who was a Palestinian academic and activist and a prominent uh, figure in the you know, Islamic education in Florida, but also uh, the Holy Land Foundation, which was the largest American Muslim charity. Those guys, there's a great book, by the way, by my friend Miko Peled uh, that everyone should pick up about them. And they're in jail basically for life for sending zakat, for sending charity to the Gaza Strip to the same NGOs that were being funded by the Red Cross and USAID. It was the phoniest bus. Yeah, let me just, Zakat is a charity for hundreds of years in communities, and AID uh, distributes their aid through Zakat communities, which is exactly what the Holy Land Foundation did. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they don't get any, they don't get the real, they don't get Bin Laden living next door. They get... They start, the FBI needs to justify its budget. It needs to justify the whole thing. The Bush administration needs to justify the war on terror, and it flows into the Obama administration. And so they start going after uh, mentally disturbed young Muslim men who are easily duped in mosques into controlled terror plots. Basically, someone will approach them and say, uh, you know, do you, I have a bomb. There's um, a sad guy named, I think, James Muhammad in Florida, and uh, some FBI uh, snitch and the snitches are often people who have criminal records and they say look we'll like reduce your sentence and give you a hundred thousand dollars if you do this uh he went after this guy named uh, james medina muhammad in florida and said let's go bomb the local synagogue and the guy who was clearly mentally disturbed said okay they arrest him and then the times of israel and the local jewish media reports that a muslim down the road wanted to bomb the synagogue anti-semitism is real and they pit muslims and jews against each other in this way they pit everyone against uh muslims in this way um you know this happened has happened hundreds and hundreds of times i think the majority of fbi terror busts occur in a controlled environment they're not actually stopping active terror plots and so i write about in, pawn, in pawns in their game the, the, one of the biggest terror attacks, in the, if you can call it a terror attack, I, I think maybe I misspoke. I'm not sure what to call it, but one of the worst mass shootings in American history. I think it was the worst prior to Las Vegas. And it was carried out by Omar Mateen at the Pulse nightclub, which was an LGBTQ nightclub in Orlando, mostly a Puerto Rican clientele. And he just basically went in, killed every, as many people as he could with automatic weapons. He was the son of an Afghan immigrant, and many people speculated that he hated homosexuals or was in the closet himself. And that was kind of the cover story for a long time that many people accepted. And it wasn't until, until his calls with the police negotiator came out um, that we learned that Mateen was um, deeply, deeply uh, affected by what was happening in Syria was all about talking about Syria and said, stop the U.S. airstrikes on ISIS. This is a, this is, he, he named specific ISIS figures who had been assassinated in U.S. airstrikes and said this is revenge for them. And then he named someone named Omar Abu Salha, who was, he said, his homie. And he said, Abu Salha did his thing. This is my turn. Abu Salha was a kid from his area in Florida who had actually gone to Aleppo and joined Jabhat al-Nusra. 
and the fight against Assad, um, and was killed in a suicide bombing in Aleppo against the Syrian army checkpoint. So he was very political in his motives. This had nothing to do, as far as we could tell, with homosexuality or his personal psychological demons. But what we learned, what, and what I was one of the first to report this in sort of an aside, the local police chief mentioned that the FBI not only had been watching Mateen, but had attempted for a long time to push him into a controlled terror plot when he was working as a security guard at the St. Lucie County Courthouse when he was menaced by Islamophobic co-workers who were fellow security guards and cops. He said one day, I'm gonna get Al-Qaeda on your ass. I'm gonna get my boys in Al-Qaeda down here. And then he was approached by the FBI for an interrogation and then they attempted to push him into a controlled plot. We have to ask what effect that had on him because he didn't fall for it. Now there's another really bizarre incident that I wanna mention in, in, uh, with respect to Mateen that I think played a major role in the 2016 campaign and Trump's victory. Donald Trump introduced his Muslim ban around Omar Mateen, and he even said that even though Mateen was American, he would deport him. And he said he would deport his father, Sadiqe Mateen, too. Sadiqe Mateen, the father of Omar Mateen, somehow shows up at a Hillary Clinton rally, seated right behind Hillary Clinton with a Hillary for America sign, and then gives interviews to the local news afterwards, declaring that Hillary Clinton is good for national security. Just a weird thing to say. And we learned, well, I think in the last summer, I, I didn't know this at the time, all along for two decades, uh, Siddiqui Mateen had been an FBI asset, had been working for the FBI, active FBI asset. So the FBI had their fingerprints on. I'm not saying they did this, they planned it, it's a false flag, but it just goes to show how little they care about national security and how close to the line they're willing to go to actually provoking uh, violence in the US. I just want to make that, elucidate this point uh, on Obama uh, from your book. The U.S. government didn't prosecute anyone from a terrorist sting during George W. Bush's last year in office. When Obama assumed power, however, sting operations resumed with staggering frequency, a tactic designed to cast his administration as just as tough on terror as any Republican. Under Obama, federal prosecutors announced an arrest resulting from a terrorism sting every 60 days suggesting that there are a lot of ineffective terrorists, you're quoting uh, Aronson, suggesting that there are a lot of ineffective terrorists in the United States or that the FBI has become effective at creating the very enemy that is hunting. Um, and this, of course, feeds precisely into Trump's Islamophobia. Let's close with the afterword, and uh, you tie all of this process to Russiagate. Yes, I mean, in uh, Donald Trump's 2017 National Security Doctrine announced by then Defense Secretary James Mattis, there was very little mention of the Islamic State because the U.S. had proceeded to basically bombard, carpet bomb Raqqa. Uh, the Islamic State had been driven out of its so-called re regions of savagery. And they moved towards what they called great power competition, which is a competition, a military competition, with the, big, with the big dogs, Russia and China. And this was inevitable. I mean, this was going to be the case under Hillary Clinton or anyone. It will be the case under Bernie Sanders, who has been sort of pushed into offering a 
a similar version of Trump's national security doctrine, but he frames it in terms of internationalism. Um, it kind of has a progressive sound to it. Um, it's about fighting authoritarianism, you know, standing up for freedom, the same thing. But uh, Russiagate, what I emphasize is that Russiagate is not just a scandal about whether Donald Trump colluded, and it's not just, as I said at the beginning, about the Clintonite bitterati uh, justifying their defeat. It very much is, and they became kind of a, a, a megaphone. But this had been building for a long time, and it's basically a cold war with Russia and China, but especially with Russia, because Russia is more pronounced in trying to foster a multipolar world in which U.S. empire is checked. And you, I look back at the 1990s, as I do throughout this book, to help us understand Russiagate. And it's at a time when the U.S. imposed a shock doctrine on Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And in its triumphalism, declaring victory over the Soviet Union, uh, the U.S. sent the Harvard boys into Russia to basically do what L. Paul Bremer later did in Iraq, which was to loot all of the state assets in Russia, to strip state assets, put them in the hands of oligarchs, and weaken Russia so that it can never return as a world power. Um, and they created the kind of massive corruption that we now see the U.S. creating post-Maidan in Ukraine. Not only that, they contributed, this contribu didn't contribute, it caused three million excess deaths. Three million people died as a result of what the U.S. did after the collapse of the Soviet Union through the Harvard boys, Larry Summers and these characters who were sent in uh, and funded by USAID to do it. Three million people died because they were pensioners, uh, because they were uh, unable to find community and they turned to drug addiction, suddenly heroin's flowing in, they turned to alcoholism, and they can't afford to live anymore and they simply die in gutters. Uh, that was what happened in the 1990s. Yeltsin basically drinks himself half to death after the U.S. steals an election for him in 1996. I mean, you want to talk about meddling. Let's look at meddling in terms of Yeltsin's election when Pete Wilson's whole campaign staff was basically sent to the Soviet Union, to Russia, funded by uh, ma mafioso and olig local oligarchs to steal a campaign. Let me just interject. They gave Yeltsin a $10 billion IMF loan, and it's estimated that $1.5 billion of that went into his re-election campaign. Yeah, yeah. And, and a congressional report even found this, but there was very little news about it in the U.S. because all of the columnists who now, the same class of people who've been hyping up Russiagate, were <laughs> celebrating Yeltsin as this great Democrat, even though he bombed parliament. He attacked his own parliament. I mean, he's basically a Pinochet or a Bolsonaro character, but even more corrupt. So uh, Yeltsin, you know, um, Beresovsky, who's the main oligarch, presides over the transition of power to someone the U.S. thought they could work with, Vladimir Putin. Uh, who was, you know, in St. Petersburg and was helping oversee lots of capitalist investment there. And Putin actually recognizes that the Kremlin had been weakened, that the Russian people actually would welcome a strong figure who would begin to prosecute oligarchs and uh, re renew Russia's role in the world um, as a powerful country that could defend its national interests at a time when the, red, the Russian army was getting whooped in Chechnya. Um, by 2000, I would say 2007, uh, the Cold War had started to begin. Uh, the GDP in Russia was growing, 
um, the population was actually, the negative population uh, growth was actually starting to slow and even out. Um, Putin was getting extremely popular. Um, the uh, Georgia, which had been basically a project of the U.S. invade South Ossetia and Russia turns them back. Putin gets his first big bump in the opinion polls. Um, you know, he's building this youth movement around him. Russian pride's coming back. And he gives this speech at the Munich Security Conference with John McCain and Joe Lieberman sitting in the front row where he denounces the war in Iraq and says that the U.S. cannot continue willy-nilly embarking on these regime change projects around the world. And so it was inevitable that this clash was going to come at that point. And it came in so many forms that I outline in my book, all the way down to the resignation of Liz Wall from RT in 2014, which was stage managed by the think tank of Robert Kagan, the author of the Project for a New American Century, uh, to embarrass Russia's network in Washington uh, and embarrass uh, the, the personalities on it. So there are so many things that led up to this and, Don, and it, Donald Trump's victory became the perfect storm because here was an oligarch who dealt with oligarchs everywhere. I mean, it could have been Saudi gate, it could have been Emirati gate. I think there are much more connections between the Trump uh, organization and those families than there were in Russia where he was actually rejected for building, um, to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. But it became Russiagate. And they had enough to go on. He had contacts with Russia. They're in back channel contacts, right? Michael Flynn, his first national security advisor, had a phone call with Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador. Michael Flynn, you know, stupid. He was in Cayman Islands, half past cocktail hour. Doesn't realize that if you're not in the US, the NSA can listen to you on its cables and then leak that to like um, half the Beltway press corps. And so the story comes out in the Washington Post. Secret contacts between Trump's national security advisor and Russia's ambassador. Oh my God, Putin's puppet. You know, and now you have these hol you know, holographic images going up uh, across downtown Manhattan of, of Putin and Trump. Uh, and, and Trump is pregnant, and Putin's, they're shirtless, and Putin's hugging him, and they're gay together. Oh my God. What we aren't told is that the contents of that call showed us that this was about Israel gay. Why was Flynn calling Kislyak? Because Barack Obama at that time, before Trump had come into, into office, Barack Obama was going to um, abstain from a UN General Council vote on Israeli settlement growth condemning Israel. And Netanyahu asked Jared Kushner, his little you know, marionette, to ask Flynn to beg Kislyak in Russia to be the veto. And Russia was like, what the hell are you talking about? We're not gonna do that. And so it didn't work. But anyway, the point is, it was about Israel, but it became about Russia in the public mind. And it became shirtless Putin and Donald Trump projected on walls in downtown Manhattan. Um, and here we are, um, you know, Aaron Mate got a victory lap and all the rest of us got was a stupid Cold War. All right, I just, I'm just going to close with this paragraph and then we can open it up to questions from Max's book. Islamophobia had become the language of a wounded empire. The guttural roar of its malevolent violence turned back from the sands of Iraq and the mountain passes of Afghanistan and leveled against the mosque down the turnpike. The hijabi in the checkout line, the seat behind the cash register, the neighbors who look like the enemy, the very hard war between Muslims and Westerners that a member of bin Laden's inner circle had foreshadowed 
1996 was Coming Home. It's a great book. Make sure you get it, and let's open to questions. Thank you, Chris. We, can, we don't need a mic, we can just kind of, let's take two at once. Uh, you had your hand up first, and then, uh, I guess because you're closer, I'll call on you, and then I see you all back there, so go ahead. Okay. So much of your book is about media lies and manipulation. I was wondering what you thought about the media coverage of General Haftar's they're trying to portray him as a pawn of Saudis rather than someone who would embarrass them and point out the futility of their Libya intervention once he comes to power and crushes the Muslim Brotherhood and has his boots on political Islam. Do you think this is also an example of them just repeatedly lying in order to make themselves, uh, make, make their own terrible causes look good in the eyes of the public? Yeah. I'll repeat the questions for those who can't hear. Yeah, if you can uh, speak more about uh, the think tanks and the foundation, where the funding is coming from. Okay, so the first question was about, you know, uh, how Haftar is now being kind of portrayed in a deceptive way by mainstream media in the U.S. as he advances on Tripoli um, and as a Saudi pawn. Am I getting it right? Yeah, I don't think Western mainstream media has any ideological preference at this point for who controls Libya, and I think that they tend to just reflect the sensibility of who uh, is making the sausage in Washington and London and Paris, I guess, has, a, has had a big effect on Libya. Um, and so they're, 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 they're reflecting that sensibility. The national security state wants in Libya what it always wanted which is why NATO did its intervention, which is to keep Libya weak and fragmented. And if you look at who's in Tripoli, I mean, it's a collection of militias that were initially anti-Qaddafi militias. I write about one of them, the Nawasi uh, Battalion, because uh, as soon as the US, under the watch of you know great humanitarians like um, Samantha Power and Anne-Marie Slaughter and Hillary Clinton, um, who said that we have a responsibility to protect the civilians of Libya, um, the Nawasi Battalion started kidnapping uh, what it called members of the third sex. It started kidnapping and beating gay men. Um, and so that was sort of you know, the legacy of Samantha Power in Libya. And it's part of this coalition there right now. And you know, there's a lot of anxiety about Haftar taking over. And I think that, you know, it's justified in that he's not a great Democrat. We know who he, that he's not just a Saudi puppet, though he lived in Northern Virginia for quite a while and was a CIA asset. He has close ties to the US. He also uh, has very good relations with Russia. And what I think will happen is he is the next strong man who may end this civil war, but what the national security state is comfortable with is keeping Libya divided and fragmented and weak because it has oil because it has it has the capacity to be a strong state that can resist the influence of AFRICOM in Africa. And it's the same mentality that drives what the U.S. is attempting to do to Venezuela, which has the world's largest oil assets and a uh, very independent-minded government. Um, you were asking about the funding of think tanks in Washington. and. Uh, you know, that is a big subject in my book. Um, the Atlantic Council is NATO's unofficial think tank, 
in Washington. It has been at the forefront of, front of pushing Russiagate. It has been pushing uh, the proxy war in Ukraine, which uses Ukrainians as cannon fodder for empire. It has been pushing the Syrian proxy war for a long time and housed many, uh, pretty much a who's who from Bellingcat to, um, you know, uh, a who's who of figures who've been presented as experts. And if you look at who funds the Atlantic Council, it's not just NATO, it's the Gulf monarchies from Bahrain to Qatar to uh, Saudi Aramco. It's also Turkey. It's also the arms industry. It's everyone who benefits from these wars continuing. Um, it's everyone who benefits at the expense of regular people. And uh, tomorrow, sorry, not tomorrow, on Thursday at 9.30 a.m., Elliot Abrams will appear at the Atlantic Council to talk about a Venezuela after Maduro that will benefit all of these companies and maybe provide some benefit to the arms industry in between if they can uh, you know, drive Maduro out through some another bloody uh, proxy war. So the Atlantic Council is a perfect example. Another example is someone who tried to shut down my politics and prose talk, uh, Charles Lister, or as I call him, Charles Blacklister, um, who is the Syrian opposition sort of favorite expert in Washington. And he's at the Middle East Institute. Um, the Intercept reported that they took 20 million from the UAE. Um, I interviewed Stephen Simon, who actually was in the Clinton administration, who was a counter-terror advisor, uh, advisor to Clinton, um, someone who does have credentials. And he was a former fellow at the Middle East Institute and was fired basically because he came out and said that the Syrian proxy war does not advance America's national security interests. It's because it was making it hard, hard for them to raise money from their main funders in the, the Gulf states. Um, and you know, but my problem with Lister isn't you know who's paying him. You know that I, I, I would be happy to say you know that's your business, man. But what he did was he created the list of so-called moderate rebels for the CIA and for the British MI6. He did the research at Saudi hotels, interviewing them at opposition conferences. And then he'd come up with this list and he said there are 70,000 moderate rebels, uh, which is an implausible number. And it turned out that first of all, he was inflating that list by counting Kurds, by counting Syrian Kurds, the YPG, which is now the Syrian Democratic Forces, U.S. proxies, who have nothing to do with the fight against Assad. And then he was including groups like Noradin Elzinki. Noradin Elzinki, I, 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 can, I confronted um, Lister very politely at the Atlantic Council at an event about him listing this group. See, I don't try to shut people down. No one on my side tries to get people banned from events or try to get their books canceled uh, because we can actually go and politely humiliate them in public. <laughs> And I said, why is that group on your list? They just uh, sawed the head of a 19-year-old Palestinian teenager named Abdullah Isoff on camera and dangled it before the camera. And he said, well, they just weren't what they used to be. You know, they used to be so moderate. And then, you know, I, I didn't have, have follow-up, so I couldn't counter with the fact that they were, um, they were founded by a man who had been jailed for killing his sister in an honor killing, a great Democrat. But the point is that these are the people that are sold to us as experts. And Nora Dean Elzinki wound up briefly participating in a coalition with Al-Qaeda's local affiliate and a smaller group that called itself the Bin Laden Front. The, C the State Department refused to list Elzinki as a terrorist group because it was afraid that it would be 
It would open up the U.S. to lawsuits from Syrians who had suffered human rights abuses at its hands. So th th these are our experts. And yeah, we can look at the fact that K Street is controlled by the Gulf states, uh, but we can also look at the things they say and how bunk it is. And that's why they have to try to shut me down. Because he Lister's right there on the pages of this book. He's listed, and he doesn't like it. Go ahead. First, I just want to thank you both. You do incredible work, and it's courageous work. And would mind each of you addressing this question. Um, can you look forward, specifically for Iran? I'm very worried that much of what we've seen chronicled in your book is something that many interested parties would like to propagate there. Um, we know that Trump is basically trying to shut down all their exports. You can just tell me what you anticipate what the worst case scenarios are, if there's any hope. Thank you. Okay, on Iran, uh, and Chris, you can definitely weigh in here. Um, you know, the, the goal of the Trump administration's goal in uh, putting Iran on a total, under a total oil embargo is to force a reaction from Iran. And that's the goal in, sanction, in sanctioning the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, as a terrorist group. Um, it's to force escalation. And the people driving the agenda are people from the think tanks, like the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, people like Mark Dugowitz, who have been involved intimately in designing sanctions and designing the sanctions regime of the US all the way through the Obama administration. Foundation for Defense of Democracies is funded by three key figures who have funded the Trump campaign. Uh, they've given over $40 million to Trump super PACs in uh, 2016. Uh, Bernard Marcus, the former owner of Home Depot, Paul Singer, who is the uh, vulture capitalist who destroyed Argentina's economy and funds a who's who of the neoconservative movement, and Uncle Sheldon, Sheldon Adelson, and then a bunch of pro-Israel billionaires and billionaires that we've never heard of. Um, but they have way more influence on Trump than they've had on any president, and what they want to do is force Iran to react. And you know, for the first time, I'm seeing some kind of murmurs I saw, um, I forget his name, he's from a think tank connected to Rouhani uh, on Twitter saying that, you know, maybe, maybe we should actually um, hit back this time. And Iran can hit back. The U.S. has an embassy in Baghdad that they can hit. The U.S. has its assets around Al-Tanif on, on the Syrian border with Iraq. Um, stuff can happen. So that's worrisome because as the, ne the neocons want they want that, they want an escalation. And Dubowitz actually said, okay, great job embargoing the oil, now let's impose more insane crushing sanctions. Um, so I, I would be genuinely concerned, and I think the only way out of this is regime change. Uh, Trump has to be voted out of office. It's not actually regime change, but if you wanna. I think this is also, you know, a Netanyahu obsession, uh, and, uh, Netanyahu, well, we, the Israeli intelligence has been quite clear that the charges made by Netanyahu that Iran is developing a nuclear weapon is just completely false. Uh, but it, it plays into Netanyahu's domestic agenda, which is, I'm the only person who can keep you safe. Uh, and uh, Netanyahu practices, like Trump, but perhaps more astutely, the politics of fear. And uh, I think that a lot of these, I don't know what you think, but I think a lot of the neocons are picking this thread up from 
Netanyahu. Absolutely. I mean, Netanyahu is driving the agenda. They're all on the same page. Um, and, the, you know, they want to uh, eradicate any resistance to Israel's agenda in the region. And, you know, Iran, there was a brief period when, like, when, um, you know, the, the, when Hamas had actually was starting to move away from Iran uh, during the Arab Spring, Iran is now funding, um, you know, the resistance groups in the Gaza Strip. I mean, Israel sees Iran behind Hezbollah. It sees Iran everywhere where it's resisted. And at the same time, Israel has, um, you know, enjoyed a lot of successes through U.S. regime change operations elsewhere. Uh, but it failed in Syria. And so that's part of what's leading us back to Iran. Uh, there was a question about evangelicals in Latin America. I mean, this is this is why one key reason why Bolsonaro was elected. And uh, there's a great article uh, on Brazil Wire, which is one of the really good critical English language websites on Brazil that everyone should be following about the role of the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation in spreading evangelical Christianity to Brazil as a counterinsurgency weapon to prevent the flowering of socialism starting in the 1970s. And they worked through someone whose name I forget, who runs uh, the World Church of the Creator. Um, if you go to um, for like East LA, um, you'll see old movie theaters that have been converted into basically arenas for this church. Um, and they have membership all around the world where anyone speaks Spanish or Portuguese. Um, in Brazil, the World Church of the Creator is a major force, and it was a key force behind Bolsonaro who spoke directly to the hearts and minds of the Pentecostal evangelical population, which has also been used as a counterinsurgency weapon in places like Uganda, uh, where which is a major US ally now. So uh, in Nicaragua, where I was a year ago, which just witnessed a coup, um, evangelical Christianity is beginning to spread. You see people with Israeli flags on their cars for the first time, um, not necessarily because of Israel, but because of Israel and the Bible. And there was a WhatsApp message that went out to thousands and thousands of people at the beginning of the coup that beats that or kind of a color revolution style coup that began in April that was a American Pentecostal preacher predicting a change. Um, it was a sermon and it's translated into Spanish in live in real time. He's predicting a change. Um, I, Thomas back at there, we were, we were at, we were at, we were at our, our hotel in Managua and uh, the son of the owner came up to us with this prophecy and he said, I think it's going to happen. Uh, it's going to happen. And everyone was playing this. And so you can see how evangelical Christianity, specifically the Pentecostal style, is used as fertile soil for these kinds of operations. Um, so yeah, there's that. And then on, just quickly on your question about uh, nuclear war, well, John Bolton, who is now the National Security Advisor, because I think Trump was in executive time and liked him on Fox News, um, he has been pushing the withdrawal of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty since like 2008. Uh, and he finally got what he wanted and it's extremely dangerous. This is one of the great achievements of detente with the Soviet Union, and now we're going to see an arms race. So absolutely, absolutely it's dangerous, and only one candidate, again, has dared to call this out. Tulsi Gabbard introduced a bill calling for the re-implementation of the INF. I would like to hear what Bernie Sanders thinks about it if he's aware of what it is. Let's go all the way in the back there. Uh, the last hand in the back, and then all four hands that are up. We'll just take them all and then we'll probably go because 
As much as I love the sound of my own voice, it's probably time to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, I'll, I'll, okay, thank you. I will uh, try to address those quickly. The first one's going to be the hardest to address quickly, um, but I write a chapter in my book about the Manchester bombing. Uh, ben Norton, who's here, has written about this at the Gray Zone as well, and about the responses of Western politicians to it, highlighting uh, Jeremy Corbyn as really offering the proper response, which is to point the finger at the national security state instead of to point the finger at, you know, terror or Muslims or immigrants. Um, because in many ways, they were responsible. Uh, they didn't carry out the bombing. It wasn't a false flag attack. It was someone who wanted to do it. But it was someone who had been trained in and, and, and indoctrinated by ISIS in Libya and Syria, whose father... Ramadan Abedi was part of the Libyan Islamic fighting group that was used by the US and the UK as a proxy for years and years and years to undermine Gaddafi and was an Al Qaeda affiliate for a long time, uh, operating uh, that, 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 that started during the Afghan proxy war. Actually, John McCain went to meet with the leader of this group, Abdel Hakim Belhaj. Uh, in Benghazi in 2011 and declared they are not Al-Qaeda, they're our friends. Um, you know, right before he went to Syria to meet with some nice moderate rebels as well. So they, they they're basically were in the community in Manchester. The MI6 was using them um, and, and they, as uh, was reported, I think in Al Monitor, um, several members of this group got passports to go to Libya they go there on the rat line, they fight, they oust Gaddafi. But Salman, who's from a younger generation, much more radical, goes to Syria and fights, comes back. Him and his father are taken back to the UK on a Royal Navy ship in 2016. And then, for whatever reason, Salman proceeds to make a very powerful nail bomb and blow up a bunch of teenagers at an Ariana Grande concert, Grande concert. Uh, who were, I think it was the worst terror attack in UK history. And the whole thing had to be swept under the rug, particularly the connection to the MI6, um, just as with Syria. And it was. And Jeremy Corbyn was roundly demonized for saying that people in our, na in our national security circles need to bear some responsibility for the blowback that we're experiencing. And it's why we see this ginned up scandal after one ginned up scandal after another against Corbyn, because he's willing to say that. So my book kind of ends there because this book is about blowback. It's about chickens coming home to roost. It's about inevitabilities. And it's about, oh, it's a warning. Let's stop doing the, the stupid things that we've been doing. Uh, and let's start confronting the managers of savagery in our own midst in Washington and even here in New York uh, who are only acting on behalf of themselves and their elite funders. Uh, the next comment was about Belt and Road, and you know it's really interesting what's happening with Belt and Road. Um, it's a Chinese economic initiative that's global, and it's driving the new Cold War that's building with China. We've actually started to see Chinese scholars coming to the U.S. getting denied visas. Hostility with China is building. It's because China and Russia are starting to build a multipolar world that billions of people around the world are yearning for. 
they're yearning for an alternative. And China is actually getting active in Venezuela and pushing back against the US coup. So like, I got called a Duganist for saying that I believe a multipolar world will be more peaceful. And I was like, who is Scooby Dugan? Like, uh, do I worship Scooby Doo? Um, and then I found out it was this obscure Russian professor who'd been kicked out of <laughs> Moscow State University. But I think that you make an important point there. Um, and the third question was um, my friend in the back who was part of the uh, protest group, um, the committee to continue the proxy war in Syria. But you, make, uh, you made an interesting point, a point I've heard a lot before. And what you were saying was that Bashar al-Assad let out Zahran Alush and figures who would later um, become ISIS leaders from prison in a general amnesty in 2011. And this is part of the kind of, um, one of, one of the pieces of disinformation that is advanced that bears very strong similarity to the disinformation about Saddam Hussein being connected to Al-Qaeda, which was cooked up by the neocons. And we have neocons like Michael Weiss who constantly hammered on this. Um, who was a veteran Israel lobbyist. There was a general amnesty, Alush was let out, but it was because that was the key demand of the Syrian opposition at the time was to let them out. And the Assad government agreed because it was trying to manage the ebb and flow of the insurgency. But it wasn't just Islamists who were let out. It was common protesters, anarchists, all kinds of Jerusalem Post that it, it, it said, and you can check this yourselves, that the gear that they brought had no effect on this natural disaster. It helped no one. I don't know what they brought. I don't know what they did. Um, and I know Israel always does this for Hasbara for propaganda reasons to show that we're, they're saving everyone while driving Gaza into the, you know, a medieval siege. You know, so they'll send them to Haiti or wherever and say, we care about the world. So I, I don't know about that. What I do know is that Bolsonaro is the most pro-Israel leader in Brazil's history, that he campaigned on his support for Israel, that his first foreign visitor, I believe, was Benjamin Netanyahu, that he's part of this kind of pseudo-fascist axis that really um, gravitates towards Israel and sees Israel as a Ford Apache on the front lines of the clash of civilizations. And in tapping into pro-Israel sentiment, he was also appealing to what I mentioned before, which is the growth of Pentecostal evangelical Christianity. And so you have that relationship, and it's spreading throughout Latin America. Uh, it's challenging the Catholic Church. And uh, I think you know, it's a big, it's a serious threat to anyone who believes in a progressive wave in Latin America. Um, it is not it has not successfully penetrated Venezuela. For the first time in the 2018 election, there was an evangelical preacher running, and he got a small amount of the vote. Um, but it hasn't penetrated Venezuela. But um, Juan Guaido has appealed to this very, very much. And Juan Guaido has made specific uh, vocal appeals to the pro-Israel lobby. Juan Guaido has done a lot of church events where he's appealed to evangelical Christians. And the government of Venezuela is more than virtually any government uh, outside of the Middle East in solidarity with Palestine. In fact, at the International People's Assembly that I attended with Ben, the vice president appeared on stage with a kofia around her neck to symbolize her solidarity with Palestine. And I believe this is not a main factor, but it is a factor in 
the Trump administration's antipathy for Venezuela's Bolivarian Revolution. Anyway, this is an awesome crowd, and I thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Chris. Thanks again so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. You can hear The Katie Helper Show on iTunes, and you can rate and review us. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. I had such a great time doing a live show with Struggle Session. And if you want to hear that, and you want to hear me interview Matt Taibbi, and then host the game of Neolib or Neocon, which Matt Taibbi, Struggle Session, Jamie Peck, and Jay Flores participated in, you can hear that soon. I'll be dropping it on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy, and our theme song is by the band Cordova. 